0: We're continuing our study of the Upper Room Discourse, which is the last, this is the record of the last teachings that Christ gave his disciples the night in which he was betrayed, a few hours before he was captured by the guard and tried and then crucified the next day. And at the end of chapter 16, we come to the end of his words to them. Chapter 17 records his words to the Father in his last prayer. At this point, the disciples are discouraged and perplexed. He's told them what's happened. He's told them, he's been telling them for a number of months what is going to happen, and they still don't understand. And so he tells them in these last words some things that the future is going to hold for them so that he can encourage them. And he tells them three basic things. In verses 16 to 22, he tells them that, yes, they will have sorrow, but the sorrow is going to be temporary. It won't last forever. It will be short-lived, as a matter of fact. Then he tells them in verses 23 and 24 that they are going to have a new experience of access to the Father in prayer. And the third thing he tells them in verses 25 to 33 is that they're going to have a new clarity of understanding in the near future, after he is gone. So let's look at each of these sections, and let's first of all read verses 16 to 22. A little while, and you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples, therefore, said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And... Because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? that I said a little while and you will not behold me. And again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned to joy whenever a woman is in travail she has sorrow because her hour has come but when she gives birth to the child she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world therefore you too now have sorrow but i will take you but i will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy from you. So as we can see, the disciples don't know what's going on. He's been telling them that he's going to he was going to go to Jerusalem, he'd be delivered over to the uh, chief priest, by the chief priests and elders to the Romans, and he would die. And he told them that he would rise again from the dead. But they still didn't understand. He says, oh, I'm a little while and you won't see me again, I'm going to die. I won't be here, but then a little while, and I will rise from the dead, and you will see me again. But they didn't understand, and so he encourages them. It's true, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to die, but your sorrow is short-lived. He says it's it's rather like the sorrow that a woman who's in labor experiences. She experiences pain, which may be excruciating, and it may last for a number of hours. But as soon as the, the baby is, is born, she's so overjoyed at the birth of the baby that the uh, severity of the pain and the, and the uh, trauma that she went through greatly reduces in her mind because of the joy that's, that's replaced it. He says, in the same way, you will rejoice so much when you see me again that the sorrow that you experience will be short-lived and it will seem like nothing in comparison. I don't know how you respond to this, but uh, this section is rather encouraging to me because the disciples had been with Christ for three years approximately and they still didn't understand what he was doing or what he was teaching. And it's encouraging to me because sometimes we feel like we're butting our heads up against a brick wall trying to understand what God is like and what he says and trying to understand what the Bible says to us. And sometimes it just seems all clouded. And we think, I'm just so thick-headed. God cannot use me. He won't do anything with me. And I'm just going to... It's better if I just die. And yet the disciples, we see, were probably worse than most of us. And yet God didn't write them off. And so it's encouraging that way. It's also encouraging another way because sometimes uh, I've been, and many of you have been, the other uh, position, that of the teacher, and you think, well, gee, I was trying to make it clear and they just don't understand. You know, I teach again and again and again the truths just don't get through. And yet Christ knew that though the disciples had, were uh, seemed to respond so poorly and it seemed to get what he was teaching so poorly, he didn't give up on them because he knew that though they're, they were very ignorant at this point, still they were going to be his means of changing the world. So the disciples are perplexed and discouraged, but we can see from the example of all this that, that we have reason to take heart, that God's not going to uh, write us off. The second thing that Christ tells them about the future is that they will soon experience a new freedom in their access to God. Verses 23 and 24. And in that day you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask, shall ask the Father for anything, He will give it to you in my name. Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Now He says, in that day. Well what day? Well the day when you will see me again, the day of resurrection. He says, in that day you will ask me no question. Now, he's not really saying that they they aren't going to ask him anything because we know from other scriptures that that they did. But what he's saying, he's emphasizing, he's saying it very strongly to make the emphasis that uh, they're not going to need to come to an earthly figure directly and ask him things because they will instead go directly to God and ask him. When they're feeling pressured and perplexed and needy, instead of turning to an earthly teacher, they can turn directly to their Heavenly Father and ask Him for whatever their need. And so He says, uh, you shall ask the Father for anything rather than having to ask Me. Well, this shouldn't have been new to the disciples. Christ had been teaching them about prayer. He had encouraged them to pray. Uh, He had exemplified prayer to them. But from the picture that we can get in the Gospels, they never really got it. We never see the disciples praying in the Gospels. We see them rebuked for their lack of faith and their lack of prayer, but they're not really exemplified as uh, people who exemplify great faith and great prayer to us because they lacked it. So Jesus is encouraging them because though He's leaving them, their future will mean not that something has changed that now they can pray to the Father, but they're going to experience a newness about that relationship so that they will pray. And indeed, we do see a change. When we get to the Acts and the, and the epistles, we see the disciples becoming now men of prayer and of faith. People who trust God and go to Him with their needs. Let's look together at what specific things these verse, verses teach about prayer. And why don't you tell me, look at it and, and observe what the teachings about prayer are here. And tell me what you observe. How many different aspects of teaching on prayer are given in these two verses? What are the different components of the teaching here on prayer? Okay, it'll be to the Father. and It'll be in the name of Jesus. Okay, good. What else? Okay, we'll receive and have joy. So we see that, that, that that's a statement of purpose. Ask and receive that you you may have joy, that your joy may be full. So God's purpose in prayer is is to enrich us and give us joy. So we ask in his name, God will give it, and he will give it in Christ's name. And he also says we can ask for anything. Well, Let's see if we can understand all these different things about prayer and see if we can learn something together. First of all, what... Well, it's kind of baffling. He says, if you shall ask the Father for anything, He will give it to you. Now, how many of you have ever asked for uh, a jet airplane? You know, it'd kind of be fun. Or a helicopter. I'd rather really like to have a helicopter. Then, you know, you get rid of the traffic jams and, and uh, you know, just zip right over to work and get to watch everybody below at the stoplights and everything. Well, can we do that? He says, you, if you ask for anything, He'll give it to you. Have you ever tried for a helicopter? (laughs) Submarine. (laughs) Have to be a a shallow one to get through the Boise River, I think. (laughs) Well, what qualifications? I think you're, by your response, you're assuming that that'd be ridiculous to ask for a helicopter. But he says ask for anything. So are there any qualifications or limitations to the anything? That, he, that he's stating in this passage? God says, uh, according to his will. Okay. Okay. In my name. How's that a limitation? Okay. In this passage, there are a couple of limitations, really. In my name is one. And, and what, in what way is that a limitation? Upon God giving us anything. He gives us... Notice that the, the, the in my name really is a two-fold limitation. He says, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. And then he says, uh, in verse 24, you've asked nothing in my name. So he says, we're to ask God in Christ's name, and then God will give us his answers in Christ's name. And really, that's the limitation that's given in this passage. His giving to us in Christ's name means that he only gives us those things which are uh, fitting with who Christ is and his love for us and purposes for us. Now our asking in Christ's name means that we only ask those things which are fitting for who Christ is and our relationship for him. I think Jesus is just stating this in a very strong way because the disciples didn't pray much at all. And he wanted us to start to pray. He says, Ask for anything. There are limitations. But don't focus on the limitations. Focus on the greatness of God and his his wideness of his appeal. He wants you to pray. I had an experience recently. It kind of illustrated to me what it means, part of what it means to uh for God to give us things in Christ's name. My uh uh when I moved up here, everybody talked about how great the hunting was and stuff, so I uh, called my father, and he has a couple of hunting guns that he hadn't used in years, so he he said he'd be glad to give them to me. Uh, so far, I've only used them for the mice in the house, but... <laughs> uh, he had a friend who I'm not sure, I may have met the man once about 10 or 12 years ago, but I'm not sure if I have. But this man... Uh, dad didn't have a gun case to send the the gun in that he sent me so this man who is dad's friend and business client uh, gave dad his own gun case to ship the gun up to me uh, gun up to me so he was giving me the gun case in effect but it wasn't because of the relationship I had with him I don't even know the man and he didn't know me it wasn't out of great love for me that he you know, he did not just love people who live in Idaho, and so he sends them all gun cases or something. But he gave it to me in my father's name because he has, he has a relationship of, of respect and friendship for my father, and so he wanted to do something nice for him. So doing nice, something nice for him meant he gave something to, to, to his son. In the same way with us, a very similar way. We cannot stand in our merits before God and ask him to do anything for us We're not worthy. We're mere creatures. God is the creator. We're rebels and sinful and he is holy. And yet we can ask in Christ's name on the basis of who he is and the relationship that he sustains with the Father. It's in the confidence of that that we can ask in our prayers. And we can expect God to give. And it's because of that relationship that God gives to us. Just as it's because of my relationship with my father and George Powell's relationship with my father that George Powell gave me a gun case well, he didn't even know me and this is this is part of what it means for for God to give in the name of Christ Now our asking in his name means that that we are appealing to the relationship that those two people have because we can't appeal based upon just ourselves because we're not worthy well notice also, as it was pointed out, that he says, Ask uh, and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. And notice this is a purpose clause. This is the purpose of prayer according to this passage that your joy may be made full. Now God could do his will without our praying. He could very easily accomplish all that he wants in the world without our uttering a word, without our doing anything. Uh, even, really. But God has so designed things that he wants us as his children to have joy. And therefore, he wants us to participate in his work in this world. He wants us to have the joy of seeing our prayers answered. And so rather than just doing what he wants to do, he in some way has designed things so that he does things through our prayers. Now I don't know how you respond to that, but but... For me, it's a great encouragement as well as a great mystery. And I confess to you that prayer is a great mystery to me. Because I do not understand how it works. God is a sovereign God. In Ephesians, it says that He he works all things according to the counsel of His will. Uh, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that God knows what we need even before we ask Him. And so my logical question is, well, why pray? You know, God does what He's going to do anyway, and He knows what we need, and Why do it? And I can't tell you how it all works together. All I know is that Jesus teaches that we are to pray and that the reason is that our joy may be made full. And it's not simply that we pray because it changes us and that's it. That's the way some people say is, no, prayer doesn't change anything in the world, it just changes us. Because other portions of the scripture teaching on prayer say that prayer changes things. James says, you, you don't have because you don't ask. In other words, saying if you asked, then you would get something you wouldn't get if you didn't ask. He says the uh, effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It does something. And I can't tell you, I can't answer your questions as to how it works. But all I know is that by faith, uh, I and all of us have to accept Christ's teaching, that prayer does work. It does something it makes a difference in our lives and in, and in what happens in other people's lives and what happens in the world and so he says pray be involved in it it's for your own good because god has designed it that your joy may be complete well this is the second thing that jesus tells his disciples about the future they're going to have a new clarity a new uh, uh experience of their in their uh access to their Father in prayer. It's going to be a reality to them because they're going to start doing it. That's what makes it a reality. And then in 25 to 33, he tells them a third thing about the future. He tells them that they're going to have more clarity in their understanding of God. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language but will tell you plainly of the Father. He's up to now just been speaking to you in figures. I say all these, you know, weird things like a little while and you won't see me, a little while and you will see me, and I go to the Father and you don't know what I'm talking about. He says, I admit, part of the problem is I am speaking to you in figures. But an hour is coming when I'll no longer speak in figures, but speak directly so that you can understand clearly what I'm saying well, I don't know about you, but a thought immediately comes to my mind, well, why did he speak in figures at all anyway? Why didn't he just go ahead at, at first and tell them what they wanted to know and what he wanted them to know? Well, I don't know all the answers to that, but, but a couple I do know. One is back in verse 12. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. They weren't ready yet for this fuller revelation and knowledge that he had to give them. Within God's history of revelation, uh, as it's progressed through the ages, God had to first of all bring humanity and certain had to uh, bring humanity through certain stages so that they could understand his final revelation through Christ. Another reason uh, is found in Proverbs chapter twenty five, verse two. I want you to look that up with me. Solomon says here, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. God has so designed it that he purposely hides things, purposely hides truth. Not because he doesn't want us to find it, but I think the reason here is because he wants us to appreciate it. If we have to struggle and pray and look and discuss and then we find truth that way, then we appreciate it, we value it. It's God not casting his pearls before swine, which uh, some of us are, I suppose. But this has been God's way throughout the ages. You think about what, what uh, the patriarchs had in terms of their knowledge of God. and It was very limited in terms of their knowledge of God's plan of salvation. We know that Abraham knew that uh, God was going to bless him and make a nation out of him and through through him and his offspring the whole world would be blessed. But as far as we know, he didn't know anything about what that meant in terms of Christ and his dying for our sins and, and all that that entailed. You get to Moses, there's a little more revelation, but the, the people of Moses' day knew very little they knew more than Abraham, but they knew very little in terms of us. People of the day of the prophets knew some more. But still, even when Christ came, the people were bewildered. And I'm frankly very sympathetic with them, with the disciples and the, the religious leaders of, Ju- of Jesus' day. If you read the prophets of the Old Testament, if, as I read them, I would expect the Messiah to come and deliver Israel and free them from their political oppression. Uh, because those passages far outnumber the passages that talk about his suffering and death for us. And they're far clearer, most of them. But that was, that's been God's plan throughout the ages, to, to give a little bit of knowledge, and then increase it, and then increase it. And we're still like that now. And he does that so that we can appreciate what we have, and also so that we can walk by faith uh, in regards to those things we don't understand. People of the Old Testament had to walk by faith in all the things they didn't understand. First Peter one says that the prophets inquired to God as to what the Spirit of Christ within them was prophesying regarding the sufferings and the glory of Christ. They didn't know what they were talking about when they wrote some of the things they wrote. They wanted to. But they had to walk by faith and trust God in spite of their own darkness of understanding, their own ignorance. And that's the same with us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, Now we see in a mirror uh, darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know in full, even as I am fully understood. He says that will happen when the perfect comes, when Christ comes again. Now during the uh, the church age, we know a lot more than the Old Testament saints knew but we still are partial in our knowledge i can't understand uh, how god can be an eternal being i can't understand the trinity i can't understand how prayer works or what it really means that the holy spirit's in my life and empowers me all these things are too too uh, deep for me to understand so we too as the disciples had to do have to walk in faith in terms of the figures and the limitations of our own present understanding. But Christ does encourage him by saying, though I'm going to die, I will will rise up from the dead again, and in in that day you you will have a deeper understanding, a fuller understanding, than what you have right now. And that's what he's saying in verse 25. And then he goes on and explains a bit more. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request to the Father in your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. And in verse 26, when Jesus says, "I do not say to you that I will request of the Father in your behalf," He's not denying that He will intercede for them. He's simply saying, "I'm not saying I'm going to do it," because I'm emphasizing that you can go directly to God yourself. You don't have to depend upon my. Uh, intercessory prayers for you. And he's just emphasizing what he's told them in 23 and 24, reemphasizing it. 28, he says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said to him, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. What they're saying is, Oh, okay, Jesus, we get it now. You said a day would come when you'd speak directly, and that's what you're doing now, finally at last. Now we understand and we believe. We believe that you have come from God because you say all these things, you know what's going to happen, and you even know what questions are in our hearts. We don't even have to tell you what we we're questioning. You don't have need for anybody to question you because you know what their questions are ahead of time. And so we now believe that you have come from God. And Jesus says to them in response, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. He's told the disciples, they're going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die. But then he's going to rise again the third day. If they really believed, then they wouldn't have denied Christ. Peter wouldn't have. They wouldn't have all scattered in discouragement that that their leader was now dead. But they say, oh, now we understand, Lord, and now we believe. And he's saying to them, no, you don't understand and you don't believe. And he's saying in effect, I'm not saying this to condemn you, but I'm really saying this to encourage you, as we can understand from what he goes on to say. I'm understanding this to encourage you because I know what's in your heart. I know what you're going to do before you do it, even your failures I know. But they don't take me by surprise. They don't ruin my work in the world and my plans. I'm in control of all things. And he says to them, though you all scatter, yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. And here he gives the disciples the secret for curing loneliness. Because though men may reject you, though they may have nothing to do with you, you feel apart. He says, he says, I know the secret because the Father is still with me. And he tells us the secret to loneliness. When we feel lonely, rejected by men and people don't like us and all that other stuff. We too can find the same secret. God is with us. That's what's most important. And then he concludes in verse 33 uh, with a uh, word of triumph. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage I have overcome the world. In saying, in saying these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, he's saying, I'm not saying these things to condemn you. You're going to be failures, yes. But I'm not going to write you out, write you off. Uh, I'm still able to use you. And this is encouraging, because God does use failures. If He used the disciples, He can use us. Uh, They rejected Christ, they didn't believe, they didn't understand, and they all scattered. But he says to them, Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Take courage. Now he's saying uh, that in me you may have peace. Well, how do we have the peace in him? Well, I think in this context it's really twofold. We have peace in him because he knows what we are, and he knows what we're going to do, and he's still in control. And we have peace because we know that even our failures don't take him by surprise. And just because we fail doesn't mean we're forever forsaken by him. And secondly, we have peace because though in the world we have tribulation, we know that he has overcome the world. You know, there's nothing that's so encouraging as knowing that you're on the winning side. And no pressure and no defeat or temporary setback uh, is so critical or so discouraging or upsetting to you. If you know that your team is really winning, uh, it's devastating if you're playing football. It's devastating to you if you fumble and that fumble caused the uh, defeat. But if your team is winning 55 to nothing and you fumble, then it's a lot easier to shrug it off. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying. I have overcome the world. Though you fail... You don't have to be wiped out because I have overcome the world. And that's good for us to remember that that he has overcome the world when we face the pressures from various sides. When you try to witness to somebody and their worldview and mindset is so different that you feel discouraged because you think, well, how can I even communicate to this person? You know, he retranslates everything I say and puts it into his relativistic terms and everything else and you feel all defeated you feel it's no use. You can take courage because he says, I have overcome the world. Or if you're in a classroom and your professor is ridiculing the Bible and you have 200 people in there and you can't stand up to say anything, you even not know what to say anyway, and you feel defeated and discouraged and you feel like things are out of God's hand, and you can become encouraged. Take courage, he says, for I have overcome the world. Or when all your neighbors become Mormons, Uh, and you feel like withdrawing and giving up the ship. He says, Take courage, for I have overcome the world. So these are truths that he's given the disciples as he's about to leave, but truths that we can benefit from as well. Their sorrow is going to be real, but it's going to be temporary, he says in verses 16 to 22. Then he says that that through what is going to take place they're going to have a new experience of reality of their access to the Father in prayer. And finally says they're going to have a new clarity of understanding. And then he concludes saying, take courage because I have overcome the world. Well, I think it would be appropriate in light of what Jesus has taught in this passage in verses 23 and 24, that rather than my closing in prayer tonight, we all close in prayer.